This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's uh, a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in The Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London right now. Recording by Matt Saw. The Iron Heel by Jack London. Forward. At first, this earth, a stage so gloomed with woe, you almost sicken at the shifting of the scenes. And yet, be patient. Our playwright may show in some fifth act what this wild drama means. It cannot be said that the Everhard manuscript is an important historical document. To the historian, it bristles with errors, not errors of fact, but errors of interpretation. Looking back across the seven centuries that have lapsed since Avis Everhard completed her manuscript, events, and the bearings of events that were confused and veiled to her, are clear to us. She lacked perspective. She was too close to the events she writes about. Nay, she was merged in the events she has described. Nevertheless, 
As a personal document, the Everhard manuscript is of inestimable value. But here again, enter error of perspective and vitiation due to the bias of love. Yet we smile, indeed, and forgive Avis Everhard for the heroic lines upon which she modelled her husband. We know today that he was not so colossal, and that he loomed among the events of his times less largely than the manuscript would lead us to believe. We know that Ernest Everhard was an exceptionally strong man, but not so exceptional as his wife thought him to be. He was, after all, but one of a large number of heroes who throughout the world devoted their lives to the revolution. Though it must be conceded that he did unusual work, especially in his elaboration and interpretation of working-class philosophy, proletarian science, and proletarian philosophy were his phrases for it. And therein he shows the provincialism of his mind, a defect, however, that was due to the times, and that none in that day could escape. But to return to the manuscript, especially valuable is it in communicating to us the feel of those terrible times. Nowhere do we find more vividly portrayed the psychology of the persons that lived in that turbulent period embraced between the years 1912 and 1932, their mistakes and ignorance, their doubts and fears and misapprehensions, their ethical delusions, their violent passions, their inconceivable sordidness and selfishness. These are the things that are so hard for us of this enlightened age to understand. History tells us that these things were, and biology and psychology tell us why they were. But history and biology and psychology do not make these things alive. We accept them as facts, but we are left without sympathetic comprehension of them. This sympathy comes to us, however, as we peruse the Everhard manuscript. We enter into the minds of the actors in that long-ago world drama, and for the time being their mental processes are our mental processes. Not alone do we understand Avis Everhard's love for her hero husband, but we feel, as he felt in those first days, the vague and terrible loom of the oligarchy. The Iron Heel, well named, we feel descending upon and crushing mankind. And in passing, we note that that historic phrase, the Iron Heel, originated in Ernest Everhard's mind. This, we may say, is the one moot question that this newfound document clears up. Previous to this, the earliest known use of the phrase occurred in the pamphlet Ye Slaves, written by George Milford and published in December 1912. This George Milford was an obscure agitator about whom nothing is known, save the one additional bit of information gained from the manuscript, which mentions that he was shot in the Chicago Commune. Evidently, he had heard Ernest Everhard make use of the phrase in some public speech, most probably when he was running for Congress in the fall of 1912. From the manuscript, we learn that Everhard used the phrase at a private dinner in the spring of 1912. This is, without discussion, the earliest known occasion on which the oligarchy was so designated. The rise of the oligarchy will always remain a cause of secret wonder to the historian and the philosopher. Other great historical events have their place in social evolution. They were inevitable. Their coming could have been predicted with the same certitude that astronomers today predict the outcome of the movements of stars. Without these other great historical events, social evolution could not have proceeded. Primitive communism, chattel slavery, serf slavery, and wage slavery were necessary stepping stones in the evolution of society. But it were ridiculous to assert that the Iron Heel was a necessary stepping stone. Rather, today, it is adjudged a step aside or a step backward, to the social tyrannies that made the early word a hell, but that were as necessary as the Iron Heel was unnecessary. 
Black as feudalism was, yet the coming of it was inevitable. What else than feudalism could have followed upon the breakdown of that great centralized government machine known as the Roman Empire? Not so, however, with the Iron Heel. In the orderly procedure of social evolution, there was no place for it. It was not necessary, and it was not inevitable. It must always remain the great curiosity of history, a whim, a fantasy, an apparition, a thing unexpected and undreamed. And it should serve as a warning to those rash political theorists of today who speak with certitude of social processes. Capitalism was adjudged by the sociologists of the time to be the culmination of bourgeois rule, the ripened fruit of the bourgeois revolution, and we of today can but applaud that judgment. Following upon capitalism, it was held, even by such intellectual and antagonistic giants as Herbert Spencer, that socialism would come. Out of the decay of self-seeking capitalism, it was held, would arise that flower of the ages, the brotherhood of man, instead of which, appalling alike to us who look back and to those that lived at that time, capitalism, rotten ripe, sent forth that monstrous offshoot, the oligarchy. Too late did the socialist movement of the early 20th century divine the coming of the oligarchy. Even as it was divined, the oligarchy was there, a fact established in blood, a stupendous and awful reality. Nor even then, as the Everhard manuscript well shows, was any permanence attributed to the Iron Heel. Its overthrow was a matter of a few short years, or was the judgment of the revolutionists. It is true, they realized that the peasant revolt was unplanned, and that the first revolt was premature but they little realized that the second revolt, planned and mature, was doomed to equal futility and more terrible punishment. It is apparent that Avis Everhard completed the manuscript during the last days of preparation for the second revolt, hence the fact that there is no mention of the disastrous outcome of the second revolt. It is quite clear that she intended the manuscript for immediate publication as soon as the Iron Hill was overthrown, so that her husband, so recently dead, should receive full credit for all that he had ventured and accomplished. Then came the frightful crushing of the Second Revolt, and it is probable that in the moment of danger, ere she fled or was captured by the mercenaries, she hid the manuscript in the hollow oak at Wake Robin Lodge. Of Avis Everhard there is no further record. Undoubtedly she was executed by the mercenaries, and, as is well known, no record of such executions was kept by the Iron Heel. But little did she realize, even then, as she hid the manuscript and prepared to flee, how terrible had been the breakdown of the Second Revolt. Little did she realize that the tortuous and distorted evolution of the next three centuries would compel a third revolt and a fourth revolt, and many revolts, all drowned in seas of blood, ere the world movement of labor should come into its own. And little did she dream that for seven long centuries the tribute of her love to Ernest Everhard would repose undisturbed in the heart of the ancient oak of Wake Robin Lodge. Anthony Meredith, Ardis, November the 27th, 419 B.O.M. End of the Forward Recording by Matt Saw Don'ts There are butterflies in the sunshine, and from everywhere arises the drowsy hum of bees. It is so quiet and peaceful, and I sit here and ponder, and am restless. It is the quiet that makes me restless. It seems unreal. All the world is quiet, but it is the quiet before the storm. I strain my ears and all my senses for some betrayal of that impending storm. Oh, that it may not be premature. That it may not be premature. 
The Second Revolt was largely the work of Ernest Everhard, though he cooperated, of course, with the European leaders. The capture and secret execution of Everhard was the great event of the spring of 1932 A.D. Yet so thoroughly had he prepared for the revolt that his fellow conspirators were able, with little confusion or delay, to carry out his plans. It was after Everhard's execution that his wife went to Wake Robin Lodge, a small bungalow in the Sonoma Hills of California. Small wonder that I am restless. I think and think, and I cannot cease from thinking. I have been in the thick of life so long that I am oppressed by the peace and quiet, and I cannot forbear from dwelling upon that mad maelstrom of death and destruction so soon to burst forth. In my ears are the cries of the stricken, and I can see, as I have seen in the past, all the marring and mangling of the sweet, beautiful flesh, and the souls torn with violence from proud bodies and hurled at God. Thus do we poor humans attain our ends, striving through carnage and destruction to bring lasting peace and happiness upon the earth. Without doubt, she here refers to the Chicago Commune. And then I am lonely. When I do not think of what is to come, I think of what has been and is no more. My eagle, beating with tireless wings the void, soaring toward what was ever his son, the flaming ideal of human freedom. I cannot sit idly by and wait the great event that is his making, though he is not here to see. He devoted all the years of his manhood to it, and for it he gave his life. It is his handiwork. He made it. With all respect to Avis Everhard, it must be pointed out that Everhard was but one of many able leaders who planned the Second Revolt. And we, today, looking back across the centuries, can safely say that even had he left, the Second Revolt would not have been less calamitous in its outcome than it was. And so it is, in this anxious time of waiting, that I shall write of my husband. There is much light that I alone of all persons living can throw upon his character, and so noble a character cannot be blazoned forth too brightly. His was a great soul. And when my love grows unselfish, my chiefest regret is that he is not here to witness tomorrow's dawn. We cannot fail. He has built too stoutly and too surely for that. Woe to the iron heel. Soon shall it be thrust back from off-prostrate humanity. When the word goes forth, the labor hosts of all the world shall rise. There has been nothing like it in the history of the world. The solidarity of labor is assured, and for the first time will there be an international revolution, wide as the world is wide. The Second Revolt was truly international. It was a colossal plan, too colossal to be wrought by the genius of one man alone. Labor in all the oligarchies of the world was prepared to rise at the signal. Germany, Italy, France, and all Australasia were labor countries, socialist states. They were ready to lend aid to the revolution. Gallantly, they did, and it was for this reason, when the Second Revolt was crushed, that they too were crushed by the united oligarchies of the world their socialist governments being replaced by oligarchical governments. You see, I am full of what is impending. I have lived it day and night, utterly, and for so long that it is ever present in my mind. For that matter, I cannot think of my husband without thinking of it. He was the soul of it, and how can I possibly separate the two in thought? As I have said, there is much light that I alone can throw upon his character. It is well known that he toiled hard for liberty and suffered sore. How hard he toiled and how greatly he suffered I well know, for I have been with him during these twenty anxious years, 
and I know his patience, his untiring effort, his infinite devotion to the cause for which only two months are gone, he laid down his life. I shall try to write simply, and to tell here how Ernest Everhard entered my life, how I first met him, how he grew until I became a part of him, and the tremendous changes he wrought in my life. In this way, may you look at him through my eyes, and learn him as I learned him, in all save the things too secret and sweet for me to tell. It was in February 1912 that I first met him, when, as a guest of my father's at dinner, he came to our house in Berkeley. I cannot say that my very first impression of him was favorable. He was one of many at dinner, and in the drawing-room where we gathered and waited for all to arrive, he made a rather incongruous appearance. It was preacher's night, as my father privately called it, and Ernest was certainly out of place in the midst of the churchmen. John Cunningham, Avis Everhard's father, was a professor at the State University at Berkeley, California. His chosen field was physics, and in addition he did much original research and was greatly distinguished as a scientist. His chief contribution to science was his studies of the electron and his monumental work on the identification of matter and energy, wherein he established beyond cavil and for all time that the ultimate unit of matter and the ultimate unit of force were identical. This idea had been earlier advanced but not demonstrated by Sir Oliver Lodge and other students in the field of radioactivity. In the first place, his clothes did not fit him. He wore a ready-made suit of dark cloth that was ill-adjusted to his body. In fact, no ready-made suit of clothes ever could fit his body. And on this night, as always, the cloth bulged with his muscles, while the coat between his shoulders, what of the heavy shoulder development, was a maze of wrinkles. His neck was the neck of a prize-fighter, thick and strong. So this was the social philosopher and ex-horseshoe my father had discovered, was my thought. And he certainly looked it, with those bulging muscles and that bull throat. Immediately I classified him. A sort of prodigy, I thought. A blind Tom of the working class. In that day it was the custom of men to compete for purses of money. They fought with their hands. When one was beaten into insensibility or killed, the survivor took the money. This obscure reference applies to a blind Negro musician who took the world by storm in the latter half of the 19th century of the Christian era. And then, when he shook hands with me, his handshake was firm and strong, and he looked at me boldly with his black eyes. Too boldly, I thought. You see, I was a creature of environment, and at that time had strong class instincts. Such boldness on the part of a man of my own class would have been almost unforgivable. I know that I could not avoid dropping my eyes, and I was quite relieved when I passed him on and turned to greet Bishop Morehouse, a favorite of mine, a sweet and serious man of middle age, Christ-like in appearance and goodness, and a scholar as well. But this boldness that I took to be presumption was a vital clue to the nature of Ernest Everhard. He was simple, direct, afraid of nothing, and he refused to waste time on conventional mannerisms. You pleased me, he explained long afterward, and why should I not fill my eyes with that which pleases me? I have said that he was afraid of nothing. He was a natural aristocrat, and this in spite of the fact that he was in the camp of the non-aristocrats. He was a superman, a blonde beast such as Nietzsche has described, and in addition he was aflame with democracy. Friedrich Nietzsche, the mad philosopher of the 19th century of the Christian era, who caught wild glimpses of truth, but who, before he was done, reasoned himself around the great circle of human thought and off into madness. 
In the interest of meeting the other guests, and what of my unfavorable impression, I forgot all about the working-class philosopher, though once or twice at table I noticed him, especially the twinkle in his eye as he listened to the talk first of one minister and then of another. He has humor, I thought, that I almost forgave him his clothes. But the time went by, and the dinner went by, and he never opened his mouth to speak, while the ministers talked interminably about the working class and its relation to the church, and what the church had done and was doing for it. I noticed that my father was annoyed because Ernest did not talk. Once father took advantage of a lull and asked him to say something, but Ernest shrugged his shoulders and with an I have nothing to say went on eating salted almonds. But father was not to be denied. After a while he said, We have with us a member of the working class. I am sure that he can present things from a new point of view that will be of interesting and refreshing. I refer to Mr. Everhard. The others betrayed a well-mannered interest and urged Ernest for a statement of his views. Their attitude toward him was so broadly tolerant and kindly that it was really patronizing, and I saw that Ernest noted it and was amused. He looked slowly about him, and I saw the glint of laughter in his eyes. "'I am not versed in the courtesies of ecclesiastical controversy,' he began, and then hesitated with modesty and indecision. "'Go on,' they urged, and Dr. Hammerfield said, we do not mind the truth that is in any man, if it is sincere, he amended. Then you separate sincerity from truth, Ernest laughed quickly. Dr. Hammerfield gasped and managed to answer, The best of us may be mistaken, young man, the best of us. Ernest's manner changed on the instant he became another man. All right, then, he answered. And let me begin by saying that you are all mistaken. You know nothing, and worse than nothing, about the working class. Your sociology is as vicious and worthless as is your method of thinking. It was not so much what he said as how he said it. I roused at the first sound of his voice. It was as bold as his eyes. It was a clarion call that thrilled me. And the whole table was aroused, shaken alive from monotony and drowsiness. What is so dreadfully vicious and worthless in our method of thinking, young man? Dr. Hammerfield demanded, and already there was something unpleasant in his voice and manner of utterance. "'You are metaphysicians. You can prove anything by metaphysics, and have done so. Every metaphysician can prove every other metaphysician wrong, to his own satisfaction. You are anarchists in the realm of thought, and you are mad cosmos-makers. Each of you dwells in a cosmos of his own making, created out of his own fancies and desires. You do not know the real world in which you live, and your thinking has no place in the real world, except in so far as it is phenomena for mental aberration. Do you know what I was reminded of as I sat at table and listened to you talk and talk? You reminded me for all the world of the scholastics of the Middle Ages who gravely and learnedly debated the absorbing question of how many angels could dance on the point of a needle. Why, my dear sirs, you are as remote from the intellectual life of the twentieth century as an Indian medicine man making incantation in the primeval forest ten thousand years ago. As Ernest talked, he seemed in a fine passion. His face glowed, his eyes snapped and flashed, and his chin and jaw were eloquent with aggressiveness. But it was only a way he had. It always aroused people. His smashing, sledgehammer manner of attack invariably made them forget themselves. And they were forgetting themselves now. Bishop Morehouse was leaning forward and listening intently. Exasperation and anger were flushing the face of Dr. Hammerfield, and others were exasperated, too, and some were smiling in an amused and superior way. As for myself, I found it most enjoyable. 
I glanced at father, and I was afraid he was going to giggle at the effect of this human bombshell he had been guilty of launching amongst us. "'Your terms are rather vague,' Dr. Hammerfield interrupted. "'Just precisely what do you mean when you call us metaphysicians?' "'I call you metaphysicians because you reason metaphysically,' Ernest went on. "'Your method of reasoning is the opposite to that of science. "'There is no validity to your conclusions. "'You can prove everything and nothing, "'and no two of you can agree upon anything. "'Each of you goes into his own consciousness "'to explain himself and the universe. "'As well may you lift yourselves by your own bootstraps "'as to explain consciousness by consciousness.' "'I do not understand.' Bishop Morehouse said, "'It seems to me that all things of the mind are metaphysical, that most exact and convincing of all sciences, mathematics, is sheerly metaphysical. Each and every thought process of the scientific reasoner is metaphysical. Surely you will agree with me.' "'As you say, you do not understand,' Ernest replied. "'The metaphysician reasons deductively out of his own subjectivity. The scientist reasons inductively from the facts of experience.' The metaphysician reasons from theory to facts, the scientist reasons from facts to theory. The metaphysician explains the universe by himself, the scientist explains himself by the universe. <laughs> Thank God we are not scientists, Dr. Hammerfield murmured complacently. What are you then? Ernest demanded. Philosophers. <laughs> there you go, Ernest laughed. You have left the real and solid earth and are up in the air with a word for a flying machine. Pray come down to earth and tell me precisely what you mean by philosophy. Philosophy is, Dr. Hammerfield paused and cleared his throat, something that cannot be defined comprehensively except to such minds and temperaments as are philosophical. The narrow scientist with his nose in a test tube cannot understand philosophy. Ernest ignored the thrust. It was always his way to turn the point back upon an opponent, and he did it now with a beaming brotherliness of face and utterance. Then you will undoubtedly understand the definition I shall now make of philosophy. But before I make it, I shall challenge you to point out error in it or to remain a silent metaphysician. Philosophy is merely the widest science of all. Its reasoning method is the same as that of any particular science and of all particular sciences. And by that same method of reasoning, the inductive method, philosophy fuses all particular sciences into one great science. As Spencer says, the data of any particular science are partially unified knowledge. Philosophy unifies a knowledge that is contributed by all the sciences. Philosophy is the science of science, the master science, if you please. How do you like my definition? Very creditable. Very creditable, Dr. Hammerfield muttered lamely. But Ernest was merciless. Remember, he warned, my definition is fatal to metaphysics. If you do not now point out a flaw in my definition, you are disqualified later on from advancing metaphysical arguments. You must go through life seeking that flaw and remaining metaphysically silent until you have found it. Ernest waited. The silence was painful. Dr. Hammerfield was pained. He was also puzzled. Ernest's sledgehammer attack disconcerted him. He was not used to the simple and direct method of controversy. He looked appealingly around the table, but no one answered for him. I caught father grinning into his napkin. There is another way of disqualifying the metaphysicians, Ernest said, when he had rendered Dr. Hammerfield's discomfiture complete. Judge them by their works. What have they done for mankind beyond the spinning of airy fancies and the mistaking of their own shadows for gods? They have added to the gaiety of mankind, I grant. But what tangible good have they wrought for mankind? Oh, they philosophized, if you will pardon my misuse of the word, about the heart as the seat of the emotions— while the scientists were formulating the circulation of the blood, 
They declaimed about famine and pestilence as being scourges of God, while the scientists were building granaries and draining cities. They builded gods in their own shapes and out of their own desires, while the scientists were building roads and bridges. They were describing the Earth as the center of the universe, while the scientists were discovering America and probing space for the stars and the laws of the stars. In short, the metaphysicians have done nothing, absolutely nothing for mankind. Step by step, before the advance of science, they have been driven back. As fast as the ascertained facts of science have overthrown their subjective explanation of things, they have made their new subjective explanations of things, including explanations of the latest ascertained facts. And this, I doubt not, they will go on doing to the end of time. Gentlemen, a metaphysician is a medicine man. The difference between you and the Eskimo who makes a fur-clad, blubber-eating god is merely a difference of several thousand years of ascertained facts. That is all. Yet the thought of Aristotle ruled Europe for twelve centuries, Dr. Ballingford announced pompously, and Aristotle was a metaphysician. Dr. Ballingford glanced around the table and was rewarded by nods and smiles of approval. Your illustration is most unfortunate, Ernest replied. You refer to a very dark period in human history. In fact, we call that period the Dark Ages. A period wherein science was raped by the metaphysicians, wherein physics became a search for the philosopher's stone, wherein chemistry became alchemy and astronomy became astrology. Sorry the domination of Aristotle's thought. Dr. Ballingford looked pained. Then he brightened up and said, Granted this horrible picture you have drawn, yet you must confess that metaphysics was inherently potent insofar as it drew humanity out of this dark period and on into the illumination of the succeeding centuries. Metaphysics had nothing to do with it, Ernest retorted. What? Dr. Hammerfield cried. It was not the thinking and the speculation that led to the voyages of discovery? Ah, my dear sir, Ernest smiled. I thought you were disqualified. You have not yet picked out the flaw in my definition of philosophy. You are now on an unsubstantial basis. But it is the way of the metaphysicians, and I forgive you. No, I repeat, metaphysics had nothing to do with it. Bread and butter, silks and jewels, dollars and cents, and, incidentally, the closing up of the overland trade routes to India, were the things that caused the voyages of discovery. With the fall of Constantinople in 1453, the Turks blocked the way of the caravans to India. The traders of Europe had to find another route. Here was the original cause for the voyages of discovery. Columbus sailed to find a new route to the Indies. It is so stated in all the history books. Incidentally, new facts were learned about the nature, size, and form of the earth, and the Ptolemaic system went glimmering. Dr. Hammerfield snorted. Uh, you do not agree with me, Ernest queried. Then wherein am I wrong? I can only reaffirm my position, Dr. Hammerfield retorted tartly. It is too long a story to enter into now. No story is too long for the scientist, Ernest said sweetly. That is why the scientist gets to places. That is why he got to America. I shall not describe the whole evening, though it is a joy to me to recall every moment, every detail of those first hours of my coming to know Ernest Everhard. Battle royal raged, and the ministers grew red-faced and excited, especially at the moments when Ernest called them romantic philosophers, shadow projectors and similar things, and always he checked them back to facts. The fact, man, the irrefragable fact, he would proclaim triumphantly when he had brought one of them a cropper. He bristled with facts. He tripped them up with facts, ambuscaded them with facts, bombarded them with broadsides of facts. You seem to worship at the shrine of fact, Dr. Hammerfield taunted him. There is no god but fact, and Mr. Everhard is its prophet, Dr. Ballingford paraphrased. Ernest smilingly acquiesced. 
I'm like the man from Texas, he said. And on being solicited, he explained, You see, the man from Missouri always says, You've got to show me. But the man from Texas says, You've got to put it in my hand. From which it is apparent that he is no metaphysician. Another time when Ernest had just said that the metaphysical philosophers could never stand the test of truth, Dr. Hammerfield suddenly demanded, What is the test of truth, young man? Will you kindly explain what has so long puzzled wiser heads than yours? Certainly, Ernest answered. His cocksureness irritated them. The wise heads have puzzled so sorely over truth because they went up into the air after it. Had they remained on the solid earth, they would have found it easily enough. Aye, they would have found that they themselves were precisely testing truth with every practical act and thought of their lives. The test, the test, Dr. Hammerfield repeated impatiently, never mind the preamble. Give us that which we have sought so long, the test of truth. Give it us, and we will be as gods. There was an impolite and sneering skepticism in his words and manner that secretly pleased most of them at the table, though it seemed to bother Bishop Morehouse. Dr. Jordan has stated it very clearly, Ernest said. His test of truth is, will it work? Will you trust your life with it? Note. A noted educator of the late 19th and early 20th centuries of the Christian era, he was president of the Stanford University, a private benefaction of the Times. Pish, Dr. Hammerfield sneered. You have not taken Bishop Berkeley into account. He has never been answered. Note. An idealistic monist who long puzzled the philosophers of that time with his denial of the existence of matter, but whose clever argument was finally demolished when the new empiric facts of science were philosophically generalized. The noblest metaphysician of them all, Ernest laughed. But your example is unfortunate, as Berkeley himself attested his metaphysics didn't work. Dr. Hammerfield was angry, righteously angry. It was as though he had caught Ernest in a theft or a lie. Young man, he trumpeted. That statement is on a par with all you have uttered tonight. It is a base and unwarranted assumption. Quite crushed, Ernest murmured meekly. Only I don't know what hit me. You'll have to put it in my hand, Doctor. I will, I will, Dr. Hammerfield spluttered. How do you know? You do not know that Bishop Berkeley attested that his metaphysics did not work. You have no proof. Young man, they have always worked. I take it as proof that Berkeley's metaphysics did not work because— Ernest paused calmly for a moment. Because Berkeley made an invariable practice of going through doors instead of walls— because he trusted his life to solid bread and butter and roast beef, because he shaved himself with a razor that worked when it removed the hair from his face. But those are actual things, Dr. Hammerfield cried. Metaphysics is of the mind. And they work? In the mind? Ernest queried softly. The others nodded. And even a multitude of angels can dance on the point of a needle. In the mind, Ernest went on reflectively. And a blubber-eating fur-clad god can exist and work in the mind, and there are no proofs to the contrary, in the mind. I suppose, Doctor, you live in the mind? My mind, to me, a kingdom is, was the answer. That's another way of saying that you live up in the air, but you come back to earth at mealtime, I am sure, or when an earthquake happens along. Or, tell me, Doctor, do you have no apprehension in an earthquake, that that incorporeal body of yours will be hit by an immaterial brick? Instantly, and quite unconsciously, Dr. Hammerfield's hand shot up to his head, where a scar disappeared under the hair. 
It happened that Ernest had blundered on an apposite illustration. Dr. Hammerfield had nearly been killed in the great earthquake by a falling chimney. Everybody broke out in roars of laughter. Note. The great earthquake of 1906 A.D. that destroyed San Francisco. Well? Ernest asked when the merriment had subsided. Proofs to the contrary? And in the silence he asked again, Well? Then he added, Still well, but not so well, that argument of yours. But Dr. Hammerfield was temporarily crushed, and the battle raged on in new directions. On point after point, Ernest challenged the ministers. When they affirmed that they knew the working class, he told them fundamental truths about the working class that they did not know, and challenged them for disproofs. He gave them facts, always facts, checked their excursions into the air, and brought them back to the solid earth and its facts. How the scene comes back to me. I can hear him now with that war note in his voice, flaying them with his facts, each fact a lash that stung and stung again. And he was merciless. He took no quarter and gave none. I can never forget the flaying he gave them at the end. Note. This figure arises from the customs of the times, when, among men fighting to the death in their wild animal way, a beaten man threw down his weapons. It was at the option of the victor to slay him or spare him. You have repeatedly confessed tonight by direct avowal or ignorant statement that you do not know the working class. But you are not to be blamed for this. How can you know anything about the working class? You do not live in the same locality with the working class. You heard with the capitalist class in another locality. And why not? It is the capitalist class that pays you, that feeds you, that puts the very clothes on your backs that you are wearing tonight. And in return, you preach to your employers the brand of metaphysics that are especially acceptable to them. And the especially acceptable brands are acceptable because they do not menace the established order of society. Here yeah, there was a stir of dissent around the table. Oh, I'm not challenging your sincerity, Ernest continued. You are sincere. You preach what you believe. There lies your strength and your value to the capitalist class. But should you change your belief to something that menaces the established order, your preaching would be unacceptable to your employers and you would be discharged. Every little while, some one or another of you is so discharged. Am I not right? Note. During this period, there were many ministers cast out of the church for preaching unacceptable doctrine, especially were they cast out when their preaching became tainted with socialism. This time, there was no dissent. They sat dumbly acquiescent, with the exception of Dr. Hammerfield, who said, It is when their thinking is wrong that they are asked to resign. Which is another way of saying when their thinking is unacceptable, Ernest answered, and then went on. So I say to you, go ahead and preach and earn your pay, but for goodness sake, leave the working class alone. You belong in the enemy's camp. You have nothing in common with the working class. Your hands are soft with the work others have performed for you. Your stomachs are round with the plenitude of eating. Here, Dr. Ballingford winced, and every eye glanced at his prodigious girth. It was said he had not seen his own feet in years. And your minds are filled with doctrines that are buttresses of the established order. You are as much mercenaries, sincere mercenaries, I grant, as were the men of the Swiss Guard. Be true to your salt and your hire. Guard with your preaching the interests of your employers, but do not come down to the working class and serve as false leaders. You cannot honestly be in the two camps at once. The working class has done without you. Believe me, the working class will continue to do without you. And, furthermore, the working class can do better without you than with you. Note. The hired foreign palace guards of Louis XIV, the king of France that was beheaded by his people. 
End of chapter 1. Recording by Matt Saw. Montreal. MattSaw.org.